Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And Richard, we are turning this week to the Middle East uh, because the Trump administration has recently underscored some of its pretty sharp foreign policy differences with the Obama administration. Uh, the latter, as many of our listeners might remember, just before the president left office, abstained from this UN resolution that was condemning Israel on the issue of settlements. Um, far more hostile posture than the U.S. has taken towards Israel at any other time in recent history. Now you have the Trump administration taking a much different tack, and uh, they recently announced that they do not see a two-state solution as the only way to resolve the tensions between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So to sort of set the table here, Richard, why don't you start by giving us a little refresher on what it is that people who advocate for the two-state solution envision? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear. They go back in some sense to 1947, 1948, and the original UN deal that set up the state of Israel also called for setting up a state of Palestine. So there'd be kind of two nations side by side. Uh, if you looked at the boundaries, they were completely unstable. They were long and skinny. There was separation between different parts, uh, but it never got a chance to go into place because shortly after the announcement, five Arab nations decided to invade in order to wipe out the Israeli half of the deal. Everybody was surprised, some shocked and some not, that the Israelis, not only did they win this particular war, but they actually managed to expand themselves so that they had the uh, boundary lines that were relatively tenable. They were a contiguous country. They were narrow in the middle, and they were pretty fat in the north and in the south. And it turned out that the two parts that the Israelis never took over were what they called Judea and Samaria. Um, and those were later annexed by Jordan and became Chance Jordan in 1950. And then there was this odd division that the Jewish forces took over West uh, Jerusalem, but not East Jerusalem, even though there were large Jewish populations there. And that went under Arab rule. And so when people start talking about that kind of selection now, uh, the vision is that what you do is you kind of go back to the pre-1967 boundary line, and what you do is you set up a state of Palestine in the West Bank, and then join to that a state of Palestine in Gaza, and you create some kind of capital which has at least a foothold in Jerusalem, and that they will live side by side with some degree of ethnic separation and some degree of economic cooperation next to one another. And uh, as an abstract matter, if you could get there, I don't think there are too many people who are opposed to it. And I think in particular the Israelis would actually strongly favor such a stable solution because to the extent that you get Arab citizens out from underneath Israeli control, uh, the question of demographic balance and the division of power between two rival religions is reduced. We know that this is extremely important. There was no partition in Lebanon when they divided the devised the settlement in Lebanon. Lebanon in 1943, and by 1958, when the Muslim population began to exceed the Maronite Christian population, you had a massive war, and for the last uh, close to 60 years now, there has been a great deal of instability in that country. So there's a lot of opportunity that's going on in this particular case, but the central question is always how you get from here to there, and is there, in fact, a deal that you can make? 
Richard, the entire notion of a two-state solution has been based over the past couple of decades, I guess at this point, around the idea of land for peace. The Israelis give up the land and the Palestinians lay down their weapons. But you say in the piece that you've recently written on this for Defining Ideas that there is a there is a defect that is inherent to that framework. Explain what it is. Okay. Well, first of all, one has to explain the framework. That is, in the after the 1967 war, there was a UN resolution which said that Israelis would make adjustments in territories um, uh, off of the pre-boundaries in exchange for peace. And the theory was they would give back most of what they took um, in the war to form the Palestinian nation, but they would rash their toehold around Jerusalem, keeping some territory. So land for peace went there. Uh, what shipwrecked this was uh, somewhere along the line in the Obama administration, it turned out that all of the territories under Israeli control after 1967 were treated as a given to the Palestinians. So the only land that you could give for peace would be land that was in Israel control before that time. This was not a deal. The second problem, of course, is with each delay in settlement, the number uh, of political settlement, the number of Israelis settling in the West Bank, most of whom, but not all of whom, are close to the Jerusalem, starts to increase, and trying to remove people who are sitting is a huge problem. Just getting out five or 10,000 Jewish settles in Gaza in 2005 was a major effort. It's not going to happen here. So uh, what you do, in effect, is you're going to have to try and work that formula, uh, but the Israelis have less land that they can give back, and the Palestinian demands of anything have become more insistent, and in fact, the backing that they have received from the international community has become larger, uh, so that when you looked at Resolution 2234, um, which was done in December of last year, uh, they call the whole Israeli occupation of all the territories post-1967 as flagrantly illegal, uh, the view is, well, if you try to hold back something which you don't have, it's not your bargaining chip anymore. And so the negotiations, which were done by Kerry under the assumption that he could work a deal, could not possibly work unless he went to the pre-2234 framework. And somewhere in the middle of the Obama administration, as Elliot Abrams has generated, uh, that model of land for territories, which would allow the Israelis to build up within limited zones in exchange for peace uh, disappeared in favor of a model which said that every time an Israeli goes into the territory, somebody else has to come out, which is a completely untenable solution on the Israeli side. So this idea of the two-state solution, this this reminds me a little bit of the dust-up that I think then-President-elect Trump caused. Uh, when he said that he didn't necessarily feel bound to stick by the the one China policy, and the reason I draw the parallel is that in both cases these are pieces of sort of received wisdom in for, elite foreign policy circles that are considered inviolable. You're going to have a one China policy, and you're going to have a two state solution in um, with the Israelis and the Palestinians. I, I wonder, Richard, there, there's the positive interpretation of that for Trump is that this is a guy who's an original enough thinker that he doesn't care about what the received wisdom is, and maybe he'll sort of shake off the cobwebs on the way that we've been handling Yeah, well, things. they're fundamentally different problems in this sense. China has no territorial control of anything that has gone on Taiwan, and what they are doing is saying, look, these guys can't be 
grade A frontline players in the international arena. They can't become mistake because we don't want them sitting in the UN and so forth. But it's understood, wink and nod, that the United States will continue to give military support and have sub Rosa diplomatic relations with these people. Just calling the president of Taiwan essentially was enough to send the Chinese into a huff. Um, I think our friend Trump backed down on this because he realized that he didn't see the gain from changing the status quo and the attention shifted to something which to my mind is much more urgent, which is the rather bogus claims that the Chinese have to sovereignty in the South China Sea. Having manufactured tiny islands, they now want you know uh, exclusive zones several hundred miles around them and this is completely improper and what the United States has to do is to send aircraft carriers in there and blow the place to smithereens if the Chinese put up resistance. So you have to pick your targets. The difficulty in the Israeli situation is that there is a mixture inside territories, divided control. There is a huge amount of quasi-autonomy in the West Bank on the Palestinian side. They have their own court system in operation. They have their own police force in what they do. They have their own elective assemblies in some way or another. And so it's not as though that the occupation as it has taken place is kind of in the traditional apartheid sense where we rule and you just simply quaver as we break down the doors and operate. Uh, So what you're doing is you have this situation and the question you now have to ask is can you find a way to make a situation where you get mutual gains given the fact that you already have a kind of incohate divided authority and the theme that I took in the piece was that I could not see any way to get from here to there um, which would in fact meet the demands of both sides so I think that the current equilibrium is in fact likely to stay in the long run notwithstanding the fact that we'd like to get over a mountain and get to another solution and we could you know try to figure out what those reasons are but I think that that's the bottom line that there's just too much optimism Kerry understood it to his peril because he completely failed and I think when the Israelis start to work out something now with the Palestinians, both of them have to recognize that at least in the short run, i.e. for the next generation, I don't think there's any comprehensive deal in the cards. So to that end, if we're left in a situation where the best choice at the moment is to stick with this tense and somewhat unhappy status quo, the question that logically invites is the one that you just raised. When does that stop being the case? What would have to happen for something more to be accomplished here? Okay, well, I'm going to make this into a little discussion of contract law. And <laughs> the general theory – but it's important to do this. The general theory on your teaching contract is that A and B sitting there isolated make a deal with one another. Now, if the deal is one for the sale of potatoes today in exchange for payment of money tomorrow, you don't care who A is and who B is. But now suppose it's a long-term contract contract and A is a corporation. You're sitting there as B and you're saying, well, is this corporation going to be taken over by somebody else? Um, Is there going to be a change of leadership, a new CEO and so forth? I have to have a deal which is going to be bulletproof, not only with respect to the guy who's in power today, but the guy who's in power tomorrow. And both sides start to think this. Under standard American law and standard English law, um, there are ways in which you can secure long-term compliance. You have actions for breach of contract, you have guarantors, you have insurance policies that you can introduce their secure transactions of one sort or another, their reputational constraints. And so you know that the risk gets large as the time frame gets larger, and then you figure out how far you can go. 
The difficulties that the Israelis have, and I think it's more their difficulty than the other side, is captured by what happened in Gaza after 2005. You set the place free. Uh, it turns out that the Fatah party takes over. We call for elections in 2006. Hamas wins. And now instead of having somebody whom you might be able to do business with, you have somebody who's sworn to your destruction. And you start getting tunnels and you start getting missiles going over the boundary line and raids of one kind or another. Well, you then look at the West Bank and you say, well, we make a deal with them. And it turns out that Abbas dies. There's another election and Hamas takes over there. What are you going to do? And the answer is there's nothing you can do. Uh, You could cordon off uh, Gaza at some horrific price. Uh, You can bomb it into submission at some horrific price in order to make sure that you're not going to be overwhelmed. Uh, But there's no way that the Jordanians are going to prevent any assistance that the Iranians might decide to give uh, to the Palestinians by staking their troops in Ramallah or five miles from the Israeli border. And so you can't make a deal with the current generation, not that you'll like them, because you don't know who the successor in title is going to be. I regard that question as an impossibility even before you start getting to the substantive terms, which are notoriously elusive if you actually realize that all the threads that have to be put together and tied up in order for the transaction to work, even if you had reliable trading partner, which you don't. Can we talk about that a little bit? You make an interesting point in the piece that you wrote for Defining Ideas that even if you were able to solve the enforcement problem under land for peace, even if you're able to strip out the violence, it's still not clear to you that the Israelis and the Palestinians could arrive at a mutually satisfactory deal. Explain that. Well, essentially what happens is think of Brexit and the exit situation. You know, They're trying to figure out how they renegotiate the transaction, and there's the hard Brexit position and the soft Brexit position. We allow trade. We don't allow immigration. We allow university students, but we don't allow other people to come across borders, retirees or whatever. And that's going to be a nightmare to sort out. And here, the way in which I put it in the paper is the way we've gone is the Israelis have proposed and the Arabs and the Palestinians have rejected. Suppose what you now do is to have a thought experiment in which you say, okay, uh, we're going to have these negotiations. We're going to make it like a labor negotiation. Management will put its offer on the table and the labor guys will put their offer on the table And then you try to figure out how you bargain from there. Well, you have to put on the table the things you're going to start to talk about. Okay, Um, there are Jews who are located in the West Bank who long antedate 1967. Uh, Many of them are in sacred sites like Hebron where the patriarchs have their tomb. You know, you're talking about Jewish lightweights, Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca. You know, these are very vital people to the tradition. Well, are they going to be allowed to stay? And if so, what are the terms under which they are going to be allowed to stay? And are they going to receive citizenship status? The Israelis will take a position that if you're going to do this, you have to extend unto Jewish citizens in the Palestinian sector the same privileges that we extend to Arab sisters in the Israeli sector. So they may not be part of the military, but they have to vote. They have to be on the courts. They have to become professionals in the system. They have to be able to hold elective office and so forth. I do not believe that the Palestinians would want to accept that particular type situation. I think they're going to be much more exclusive with respect to what goes on. And then you have, you know, such questions about how do you get from one half of uh, the situation in Gaza over to the West Bank and how you get back again. Well, what are you going to do about that? I mean, are you going to allow free movement? Are you going to confine it to corridors? Who's going to inspect it? What's going to happen if it turns out that this violent incident, what degrees of cooperation do you have between police forces and all the rest of this? It's very difficult to do that. 
that. Um, letting people across borders for work under various kinds of certificates is a clearly important issue. Are you going to guarantee some degree of freedom of motion or are you not? Are you going to allow uh, each country to build plant in the other place and to protect it against risk of confiscation? So you, what kind of diplomatic relationships, who can come in, what kind of weaponry you can start to have? Uh, you've got a list there that's very, very long. It's very easy to condemn Israel as unreasonable by saying, well, they don't give the Palestinians all they want. But if you force them to put up a set of terms that they regard as congenial to them, I don't see you're going to get it. So in the end, I think what happens is the status quo with this uneasy, divided control is the starting point. And you will never get changes that go through massive negotiations. What you'll do is you'll get adaptations at the margin in which the Israeli strategy should be the calmer the things get, the more autonomy you have in terms of the way in which you operate your system. Because frankly, the more we're rid of the control issue, the better the relationships will be between us. And then what you do is you have on the other side a much greater ambiguity because they're high-risk types who are willing to risk a major conflagration of one kind or another in order to secure immigration uh, or independence rather. And then on the other side, you have people say, we like these short-term accommodations because you know things are pretty good economically. We care less about independence and more about economic stability and political tranquility. So there's going to be more of a division, I think, on the Palestinian side. And what happens is as the rhetoric gets levered up, as the foreign nations start talk about flagrant inequality and so forth, as the United States pulls away, it makes it more difficult to work out these mid-level solutions. So the good news about the Trump situation is the announced policy, which was not Trump's policy, but it was Elliot Abrams. And he was under the Bush administration. He was vetoed by Trump as a potential Secretary of State at the deputy level. But his attitude was, look, we know where the Israelis are. They can build up, but they can't build out. And so essentially they have ability to add population, but not to add space. And that's the sort of thing that he announced, even though he's not going to hire somebody who is an anti-Trumper. And, you know, uh, David Friedman was a friend of mine. You know, I've worked with him from time to time. You know, he's very strongly pro-Israeli. And the interesting question is, is he going to actually have to back off some of his own extreme positions in order to make that solution viable? And the correct American strategy, in my view at this point, is to work for what Elliot Abrams tried to do. And then how do you handle the intellectual community, international community? Well, there's a simple way of doing it. So long as Israel has something that these countries want to have and to buy, they will enter into trade relations which will undercut the political opposition, but not eliminate it. So that's where I think we're, we ought to be heading, and we ought to be doing it under a modest degree of realism, understanding that there is certainly a tug for the validity of the Palestinian claims, but it's not a Trump that, oh, pardon the word, it is not a Trump card that overrides everything and anything else that we see. Yeah. And we should note here just as we close, David Friedman, who you mentioned there a moment ago, is the nominee to be the U.S. ambassador. That's right. He's All a right. bankruptcy lawyer. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you as always to our listeners. And remember, you can read Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. You can also follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.